If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, to chapter 61. We are in that portion of Isaiah where God is telling the future all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. He's asked Israel to put all their idols in a pile and then ask the idols to prophesy. Tell them what's going to happen tomorrow. Or if that's too hard, just ask them what happened yesterday and how it's going to turn out. And what do the idols say? Nothing. Which is convenient to have in a big pile because then you can throw in a match and there they all go. But God says, I can prove to you that I am the one true and living God because only I can tell you the end from the beginning. And so he does. He starts in Isaiah's day and he prophesies about the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Roman captivity, the first coming of Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection, the second coming of the Lord, including the rapture and the resurrection, the tribulation period, this physical second coming, the establishment of the kingdom, the end of the thousand-year kingdom, when Satan's able to raise an army one last time, one last attempt, then we have the great white throne judgment and then into eternity future. And all that's in Isaiah. And God tells us why he gives us all that prophecy in Isaiah. is so that you can know that he is the only true and living God. There are many false gods out there. And how many of them prophesy and tell you what's going to happen 3,000 years in the future? Not a single one. And when the Lord prophesies... It's not like the psychics out there. The psychics will say, oh, oh, I'm getting a vision. Oh, 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 sometime in the next two months, somebody will trip and fall. Oh, my, earth shattering. No, God tells us the very day, the very hour, and the names of the people that will do things. He named Cyrus as the leader of the Medes and Persians that would overthrow Babylon 125 years before he was born. So specific. How can God be so specific? Because he's God. He knows the end from the beginning. All right. With that in mind, let's go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 9. If we look in verse 9, it says, their descendants. The word there refers to the children of Israel who are faithful to God. Believe it or not, there were some who believed in God with all their hearts, loved him with all their hearts, and all that is coming. Let's see, I've got a question out there. Oh, nope, just a Shabbat Shalom. Okay. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles. Which means even in eternity future, there will be the Israelites and there will be the other nations. And their offspring amongst the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. If we go just to Isaiah 66, just a couple chapters in the future, we're going to find that God's going to tell us that Israel will remain forever. That means even into the new heavens and the new earth and eternity future. In Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 22, says, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. And how long is that? How long will the new heavens and new earth last? Forever and ever without end. 
so shall your descendants and your name remain. That refers to Israel and the physical descendants of Israel. What does this do for the doctrine of replacement theology? Just throws it in the garbage. Verse 23, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. That's as long as the new heavens and the new earth remain. What does that do to the doctrine that God abolished Shabbat and replaced it with Sunday? Those in the garbage too. When it says all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, does that make you think of Zechariah 14, 16, when everyone must come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? It should. Let's go back to Isaiah 61, we're up to verse 10, which says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. When you see that phrase, greatly rejoice, which of the seven appointed times of the Lord do you think of? Tabernacles. Tabernacles prophesies what? The establishment of the Messianic kingdom, God dwelling amongst men. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why, where will the Lord be? What's that? In their midst, right amongst us. In the new Jerusalem, what separates us from the Lord? The answer is nothing. We get to live in his presence. We will get to sing in his presence. I hope I sing better than now, but that's neither here nor there. We will get up and dance the horror together. He may even lead it. Wouldn't that be cool? It says, for because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Just think, we talked last night about one of the parables of the Lord about the wedding feast. And how there was one man there at the wedding feast that didn't have on the proper garments. Where did the wedding garments come from in those days? They came from the one putting on the wedding, right? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. God provides the garment. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We don't cover ourselves. He covers us. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Why do so many prophetic verses talk about a bridegroom and a bride and a wedding and a wedding supper and wedding garments? Are we supposed to learn from the Jewish wedding ceremony that came down from Mount Sinai? Absolutely. It's a big prophecy of Messiah taking his bride. I've taught that for 30 years now and there was just recently put out a video where a group has discovered that, hey, there's prophetic significance to the wedding ceremony. And it's like, yeah, okay, there sure is. But when does the Lord come to dwell amongst us? When does he establish the kingdom? It's at that Feast of Tabernacles like we were discussing a few minutes ago. Go to Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation, the Lord talks about these garments that Isaiah describes. Even though Isaiah wrote about them 2,700 years ago. Revelation chapter 7. 
Start in verse 9. The first eight verses are the sealing of the 144,000. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Why is this verse here? Because these are people that got saved by the preaching of the 144,000. Otherwise, we'd have to ask, okay, God's going to save 144,000 Jews and send them out like the Apostle Paul to all corners of the world. I wonder if anybody will listen. Will anybody listen? Countless multitudes, which no one can number. Those white robes are the righteousness of the saints. Crying out with a loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What Lamb? That's our Messiah Yeshua, of course. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, See that word answered? Did you see a question? No, that tells you the underlying language is Hebrew. Because the Hebrew verb answer doesn't require a question to have been asked. Saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So they were not saved when the rapture came. But God sent the 144,000 out as well as an angel goes round and round the globe, as well as the two witnesses at the temple preaching the gospel message and these countless multitudes got saved, even though it was going to cost them their very lives. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger nor th more, anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wait. Yes? Can you go back verse 13? The word answered. Can I explain it a different way? Let me try. Explain it, again. explain it again. Okay. The word answered in English means somebody asks a question, you respond to it. In Hebrew, it does not require that a question's been asked. It just means this person is now going to interject and speak. So in English, we think then one of the elders answered, but there's no question. What was the question? Well, there doesn't have to be a question. Okay. Let's look also at Revelation chapter 19. What's that? I can't hear Ruth. No, it was saying, why didn't they just use the word ask? Then one of the elders asked. And then one of the questions. Why didn't they do that? Because the original language is Hebrew. 
And they just translated the words as literally as they could without trying to make a make sense in English. They went from Hebrew to Greek to English. We would, we would say, and then he spoke and said, Yeah. But Hebrew said, that's correct Hebrew. It is correct he Hebrew. Yeah. Okay, Revelation 19. Revelation 19 also addresses the white robes. What are they? Revelation 19 verses 7. Are we there? Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In this same book, in Revelation 14, 12, it describes the saints as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So the fine linen, bright and clean, is the righteous acts done by the saints after they got saved. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, what? See that you do not do that. Why? Whom can we worship? God alone. But when people fell down and worshipped Yeshua, did he rebuke them and tell them to get up? He did not. Just another proof that Yeshua truly is God. Back to Isaiah chapter 61. We're up to verse 11. For, because, as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. Think about it for a moment. When you plant a grain of wheat or a grain of corn what happens to that grain it dies and from that which died arose something alive that plant that brings forth fruit it's picturing we who die before messiah returns being raptured and resurrected back to new life. The dead coming back to life. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That last part tells us that God has always intended righteousness and his praise to spread through all the nations, not just Israel. He's not just the God of Israel. How do we know he's the God of all people? What does the Shema say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If there's only one God, he's the God of all peoples. So I've heard many times, you probably have too, that the tribulation is so that Israel will come to faith. That's partially true. I've also heard that no Gentile will be saved. 
in the tribulation period. How do we know that's not true? We just read Revelation 7 that they were saved from where? All peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. The tribulation period is so that as many people as possible in the world will get saved before the battle of Armageddon and all those that are unsaved die. Does God want people to die in their sins? The answer is no. So how do you persuade people who are having so much fun in their sins today to repent and turn to God? Do you leave the world in happiness where everything's good? Or do you bring wrath upon it so that it gets worse and worse? What's that old expression? There's no atheist in a foxhole. When your life is at stake, that's when people are more likely to turn to God. And by the time we come to the end of the tribulation, turn to Revelation 16. By the time we come to the end of the tribulation period, anyone who was willing to be saved has been saved. And those that are left unsaved... Would it really matter if God continued the tribulation period 10 more years? No, they wouldn't turn. Because look in Revelation 16. Start in verse 8, for instance. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, which means it's almost time for Armageddon. And power was given to scorched men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. They know where the plagues are coming from. Does that cause them to fall on their knees in repentance? No. What do they do? They shake their fist in God's face. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And did not repent of their deeds. The next bowl is Armageddon. So let's go back to Isaiah 61. God wants people to be saved. And sometimes it takes the tribulation period. So you and I live in a blessed time. I believe the rapture and resurrection is right around the corner. And when we have loved ones that are left behind, at least we can know that they still have an opportunity, that God is still calling them to repentance, that God is still sending out 144,000 Apostle Pauls to preach, and that countless multitudes will understand and come to the Lord. And the last part of verse 11 of Isaiah 61 says, The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Let's prove that that will happen. We must once more look at Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, because they tell us with no hesitation that this verse is true. Isaiah 2.2 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Just strike out latter. It's end of days. And in the Jewish published Bible it's capitalized. 
for you and I, what it means is the day of the Lord. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what is a mountain in prophecy? It's a kingdom. So the messianic kingdom shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. The other mountains are the Gentile kingdoms which remain that are major kingdoms and the hills are minor kingdoms. Messiah will be king of kings, lord of lords. He will be in charge of all the earth, but there will be subservient nations that give their authority to him. And all nations shall flow to it. That word nations is Gentiles. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain lord to the house of the God of Jacob. Why are they coming? To throw Messiah off the throne? No. They're coming to worship him and to learn from him. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. So what does that mean? That means they have gotten saved, right? Yes. They want to know the commandments of God. They want to know the Torah. It says, for out of Zion, or Zion, prophetic Jerusalem, shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's go to Micah 4 and read the same thing from Micah. Almost the same words, not exactly. But almost. Okay, where'd you go, Micah? It's hiding. It's a little bit. I found her. Micah chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Now it shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills in peoples. Whole nation groups shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's to the temple where Messiah sits and reigns. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then in Ezekiel 44, it tells us that this is not a new Torah, it's the same Torah. God's word doesn't change. Psalm 89, 34. God says, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. It does not change. In Ezekiel 44, verses 23 and 24, it lets us know that God's commandments have not changed. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean in the clean. What's one of the first things the Catholic Church took away from people? The Sabbath was one, the feasts were second, and third was eating clean. So notice verse 23, they'll no longer eat unclean foods. Verse 24, in controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my Torah, my laws. In my statutes and all my appointed meetings, there's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. The first things that the Pope took from the people, God's making sure is restored so that everyone knows. Did God do away with them? Absolutely not. And then Zechariah 14, 16, God tells us very specifically that when the tribulation period ends, 
all the nations that are left are going to come up to Jerusalem every year to worship the Lord and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It says in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year, which means every year without fail, to worship the king. Who's the king? That's Messiah Yeshua. The Lord of hosts. Yep, that's Yeshua. And to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Wherever they are in the world, they're going to come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 61 verse 11. The last line is, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. And what will Messiah teach from his seat? He will teach righteousness. He will teach the Torah. And the nations will learn to walk in his ways. Now chapter 62 is about how absolutely assured is Jerusalem's salvation. That Jerusalem will be the heart of the Messianic kingdom. Chapter 62 verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. What song do we sing in here that comes from this? For Zion's sake. There is a version of it that's all in Hebrew, which is why we do the English version. But it's so very pretty. From Barry and Bacha Siegel. Oh, it's very pretty. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Those two clauses, what they mean is the Lord will come to action he will not sit back and be quiet he will make sure that Zion gets established as the center of our world and he calls on you and I to remind him of it and remind him of it and remind him of it till it gets done so for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. That refers back to that last part of verse 11. Until the righteousness goes forth to all nations all over the world. And her salvation as a lamp that burns. Let's go to Romans eleven twenty-six and 27. Usually when I refer to and don't turn to it, I just talk about part of the verses. But let's read it all. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Written where? In the prophets, in Isaiah. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Who's the deliverer? Yeshua, Yeshua our Messiah. Was he going to come out of New York? Miami, Las Vegas, no, out of Jerusalem. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Notice it doesn't say from Israel. God uses the term Jacob to refer to unrepentant people. 
You will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's that covenant called? The new covenant. So salvation comes out of Jerusalem. Hmm. I wonder where Messiah was crucified. Let me think. Jerusalem, what do you know? God got another one right. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 62. Okay, sorry you missed the verse, but Rachel filled them in. Good. Thank you, Rachel. Back to verse 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. That's how we know for sure that in verse 1 it says, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, it means around the world. Brightness is what? Is light. The world that's living in darkness has the light shined upon it. That's a picture of being saved, coming out of the sins of the world into the salvation of God and into his commandments. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called, the you here is Jerusalem. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. What is that new name? What's that? It's exactly right. Adonai Zedekanu. That's Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33. Who wrote first, Isaiah or Jeremiah? Isaiah did. Isaiah didn't tell us the name. Jeremiah said, but I know what it is. Jeremiah chapter 33. Starting in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, what does at that time refer to? The tribulation period. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Who's that branch of righteousness? That's our Messiah Yeshua. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely and this is the name by which she that is Jerusalem will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. Who would call themselves the Lord our righteousness? The bride would. Because back in Jeremiah 23, we're told that that's Messiah's name. So this is acknowledging that Jerusalem and the Messianic kingdom will be populated by the bride of Messiah. That's pretty cool. If we hadn't just looked at them, we would have looked at Isaiah 2, Micah 4, and Zechariah 14, 16, but we just did. So let's go back to Isaiah 62 to verse 3. Referring still to Jerusalem. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem 
in the hand of your God. A diadem is a crown. So we've just used two different words for crown. But they both mean a crown. Just like they've used the word Lord and the word God. And they mean them to be the same. The Lord is God. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 28 verse 5. Isaiah 28 verse 5. In that day, what day? Oh, the day of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. That's our Messiah Yeshua. We know that from Zechariah 14, 16. Will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So in Isaiah 28, verse 5, the crown and diadem is our Messiah. In Isaiah 62, verse 3, the crown of glory and the diadem is Jerusalem, the bride of Messiah. What does the scripture say in Revelation 1, 6? Let's turn up and look. Revelation 1, 6. The promise God makes to the true believers is and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Which means we will rule and reign with the Messiah. Kings rule and reign. What do priests do? They teach the people about God. What a privilege that's going to be. Wow. Let's also look at Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31. The silver-haired head, well, I can relate to that part of the verse, is a crown of glory if, oh, there's that if again, if it is found in the way of righteousness. So honor the elderly if they're walking in the way of righteousness. Follow them. Learn from them. If they're just old and walking in sin, they're just old. Back to Isaiah 62, verse 4. You, referring to Jerusalem, shall no longer be termed forsaken. That is no more captivity, no more exile, no more judgments. Nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. Just remember how they described Israel in the middle of the 19th century. So desolate. But no longer in fact, we read in chapter 54 that Jerusalem's going to have to keep expanding out its borders because there's so many people coming to live in Jerusalem because Messiah dwells there. But you shall be called Hephzibah, which means what? 
My delight is in her. And your land Beulah, which means... No, it doesn't. I know our Bibles say that, but it doesn't. Beulah is the feminine form from Baal, which means master or husband. So the word Beulah is a, it's a term for a wife, an exalted wife. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. This is, of course, anthropomorphic talk. You don't actually marry a city. But it means that they're going to remain in Jerusalem and not be taken out into exile ever again. No more captivity ever. So that's what it means in verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, the bridegroom's Messiah, the bride are all the believers that are gathering together in Jerusalem, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's too hard to understand God. He's too far above us. So God gives us earthly relationships to help us at least get a glimpse of an understanding of what God's trying to teach us. That's why we have earthly fathers and earthly children. So we learn how loving fathers and loving children relate. That's why he keeps referring to the bridegroom and the bride and the marriage ceremonies. He wants us to understand how idolatry hurts him, just like adultery hurts us. Verse 6, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. This word watchman comes from the verb shomer, doesn't it? means guardians, people to defend and protect. In this case, they're translating it as watchmen because a watchman has the responsibility not just to defend the city, but also to let his inhabitants know when danger is coming. Think back to the ancient city of Jerusalem. Great walled city, right? Whenever an enemy would invade the country, they would shut those big gates and the enemy couldn't breach them. But around it are three daughter villages, Bethany, Bethphage, and Bethlehem. They didn't have walls. So what would they do when an invasion was coming? They would go into the walled city before the doors are shut, but how would they know to do that? The watchman. The watchman blows the trumpet to let them know that the danger is coming. They need to come and bring everything that's important to them and all the people and come into the city before the doors are shut and it's too late. Just think of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise, but five were foolish. Five had to go out and search for oil, but before they found it, what happened? The doors were closed. Did they reopen the doors to let people in? No. You had to get inside before the doors closed in order to be protected. So Wayne, can you address, the, is there any one uh, watchman in Israel right now? I mean, 
seems like Israel's doing some crazy stuff that would be an abomination to the Lord. So who is not sounding the alarm right now? There are people out there sending alarm. Jonathan Kahn is one that I can think of. I would like to think that we are. But let's go back to Ezekiel 33 and look at the responsibilities of a watchman. Yeah, Bethlehem's the third one. Notice they all start with a B. That's probably just coincidence. Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what does that word saying mean? It's a quote. It's from the very lips of God. Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman. Ezekiel was particularly appointed by God as a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Therefore, you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lay upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So every pastor who's truly preaching the word of God, warning the people to get saved because the day of the Lord is coming and the tribulation period is going to be so hard, they're performing the task of a watchman. And notice in verse 11, turn, turn. Those are not suggestions. Those are commandments. And the word turn means repent. Turn back to God. Where in the New Testament do you see words like verse 11? It's in 2 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9. Yeah, let's go to 2 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9.
People die. That's the nature of a human body. But God prefers that when we die, we are saved so that we can be resurrected to life eternal. He does not want us to die in our sins. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. Who does he want to repent? Everyone. Which kind of talks against predestination, predestination that we studied last night. Verse 10 begins, but the day of the Lord will come. So God doesn't want any to perish in their sins, but the day of the Lord will come. And therefore, get ready, get ready, get ready. Go back to Isaiah chapter 62. We're up to verse 7. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. What's that mean? Keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Does that sound like Psalm 122 verse 6? Yeah, let's go back to Psalm 122 verse 6. Boy, if we didn't sing about it today, huh? How did God know what we were going to sing today? Psalm 122 verse 6. It says in Hebrew, Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. That word pray, is that a suggestion? It's a commandment. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because who brings the peace to Jerusalem? Who is the Sar Shalom? That's our Messiah Yeshua. Let's go back to Isaiah 62. Verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand. The right hand is a term for Messiah. And by the arm of his strength, the word in Hebrew for arm is Zeroah. In which chapter of Isaiah does it say, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord, the Zeroah Adonai, been revealed? That's Isaiah 53, which is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. How many of you have been to a Passover Seder? What's that shank bone of the lamb on the plate called? The Zeroah. Who was our Zeroah? Who was the lamb who died for us? That was Yeshua. He died on which day? I forget. Passover. Passover. The Lord is sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Why would the Lord swear by something like that? 
Because he's swearing on himself, there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. What's that a promise of? No more captivity. No more invasion. What do Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 teach us? They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Why? Because there's no more war. How many of you look forward to that day? No more war. Verse 9, but those who have gathered it shall eat it. So you work for it, you grow it, you get to gather it, you get to enjoy it. You don't plant and someone else gathers it and enjoys it. And praise the Lord. Why is that verse there? You give the Lord praise instead of the idols. You're exactly right. Think back to 1 Kings chapter 18. In the northern kingdom of Israel, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, God would provide a bountiful harvest. And what did the people do? They went and gave thanks to Baal and Ishtar. Not to the God who provided it. And what did Elijah do? He had a contest with the prophets of Baal. Had each build an altar. And then he let the Prophets of Baal go first. They put their sacrifice on the altar. And they cried out to Baal to light the fire. And what did Baal do? Nothing. Nothing. Then Elijah started to humiliate them. Cry louder. Perhaps your God is in the bathroom. Perhaps he's on a vacation. So they cried louder, they cut themselves, they poured their blood upon the sacrifice, and what did Baal do? Nothing. And then, because he had a sense of humor, he said, this is too easy. Go down to the brook down there and get water. If you've ever been on top of the Mukracha, that creek is probably three miles away down the mountain. And they would go down, that's a steep mountain. They would go down, they would bring the water all the way up and pour it out on his sacrifice. Oh, that's not enough, go get more. <laughs> he was just funning with them, I think. But by the time they were done, his sacrifice, his altar was just drenched and just standing in water. He said, okay, now God. And God sent the fire and consumed the sacrifice, the altar, the water, everything. What was God trying to show Israel? That he's God and there is no other. And that they needed to stop blessing Baal and Ishtar for all the blessings God brought them. So when we come back to Isaiah 62, and praise the Lord is a way of saying no more idolatry. No more do the pagan gods get credit for the blessings God provides. And those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Notice the emphasis on my. I want you to remember something Messiah said in Matthew 26. Let's turn over there. 
Matthew 26. Verses 27 to 29. This is at a Passover Seder that we call the Last Supper. In verse 26, he takes the afikomen, that piece of unleavened bread that was broken during the Seder, wrapped in linen cloth and buried away. And then after dinner was brought back out, symbolic of resurrection. And he gives them a piece and says, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, verse 27, and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But we're here for verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. What day? The day of the Lord when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So back in Isaiah chapter 62 verse 9, that's what the Lord is referring to when he says, we'll drink it together in my holy courts. We will celebrate the Passover with the Messiah. We will remember his death, burial, and resurrection and what it meant for fallen mankind. I have to kind of choke on my own words whenever I hear a theologian get up there and speak and say, the feasts of Leviticus 23 have nothing to do with the Christian church. Really? The death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah has nothing to do with the Christian church. The coming and dwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 has nothing to do with the Christian church. Let the blood pressure come down. Verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Go through. Go through the gates. What gates? It's got a double meaning. When the pilgrims would come up to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals, they had to go through a particular set of gates. Have you ever been there on the southern steps of the Temple Mount and seen the big double gates? All the pilgrims went through those gates, including Messiah, including Peter, Paul, James, and John. And there is a huge stone that goes all the way in front of both gates, which means that's one spot in Israel I can say Messiah stepped on. Peter, Paul, James, and John stepped on it, and I brought a piece of it home from Israel. Shame on me. Oh, well. I'm willing to live with that. But go through, go through the gates means that there is a particular way into the new Jerusalem, into the messianic kingdom, into the kingdom of the Lord. And what is that way? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the, life. and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So it's an encouragement to come through the gate, the way that God has prepared. But it also reminds us of Matthew chapter 7, that there are two roads, the broad way and the narrow way. And which is the way that leads to life? The narrow way. That is the gate through which we must enter. 
When it says go through, go through the gates, it means get ready, get ready to move. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. John the Baptist was one that was charged with preparing the way. And how did he do that? Told the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and baptize for the remission of sins. He was trying to turn the hearts of the children to the Father to prepare the way of the Lord. So verse 10 here is a big call for repentance. To get on the right way, the narrow way, the way that Messiah leads us through to bring us to heaven. That banner, lift up a banner for the peoples. Isaiah uses that term many times as a reference to Messiah. So it's another way of saying reach out to the entire world and let them know that there is one way of salvation. And that's by faith through the completed work of our Messiah, Yeshua. Let's turn to Matthew 24. I can give you a clear sign that when you hear a theologian begin to talk about the rapture by saying, turn to Matthew 24, that you can save a little time by changing the channel. Matthew 24 doesn't teach about the rapture. And those who think it does are the ones who come out and say, obviously it's a post-tribulation rapture. Because they're confusing the literal return of Messiah at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation 19.11 with the rapture and the resurrection. They're not the same. But in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 14, there is a verse that gets sometimes a little bit confused by people. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's some people that think, well, that's talking about Christian radio. We need to get the gospel preached across the world before the rapture and resurrection shall come. But that's not it at all. This is the task or assignment or responsibility of the 144,000. I'm very much in favor of Christian radio and television taking the gospel around the world. That's just not the fulfillment of this verse. The first seal is the release of the false messiah, and that's in verse 6. The second is war. I'm sorry, the first seal is verse 5. The second seal, war, is verse 6. The third and fourth are famine and pestilence. That's in verse 7. The martyrs get killed in the fifth seal. That's verse 9. So when we come to verse 14... This is the mission of the 144,000 to take the gospel around the world. And then the end will come. Does that mean the end of the world? It's the goal. It's the word telos. It means the return of Messiah to establish the kingdom. So the 144,000 will take the gospel message around the entire world. 
before the tribulation period ends. So that anyone who is still unsaved at the end of the tribulation period are without excuse. They've heard the gospel. They rejected the gospel. And we read in Revelation 16, they know exactly where the judgments are coming from and why. And rather than repenting, they just shake their face, their fist in God's face. Okay, back to Isaiah chapter 62. We're up to verse 11. Indeed. I like that word indeed. It's just a way of saying this is really going to happen. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion. Is that talking about girls? No, it's talking about those unwalled villages. In which of those unwalled villages was Messiah born? Bethlehem. In which one did he frequently reside and raise Lazarus from the dead? That was Bethany. From which one did he ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? That was Bethphage. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. What's Yeshua mean? Salvation. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. His reward is with him. Have we heard that before anywhere? Several times, right? Let's go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 27. We could go to many places, but we have in the past. So this time we're going to do the short version. For the Son of Man, who's that? So our Messiah Yeshua will come in the glory of his Father. Give me a chapter. Ezekiel 43. And his precursor, Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Yep. With his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works not words notice according to his works will we keep the commandments of God or won't we salvation is by faith the rewards come by and what did you do after you got saved that's 1 Corinthians teaches us about the Bema Seed judgment but first let's go to Revelation 22 What's the last book of the Bible? Quick. Revelation. What's the last chapter? Chapter 22. Okay. Verses 12 to 15. Let's see if this has changed since Matthew 16 records the words of Messiah. Verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In Isaiah 41.4, those words were written about the Lord. So they are here. Blessed are those who do his commandments, 
that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gate into the city. That city is the new Jerusalem. But outside are dogs, meaning male homosexuals. And sorcerers, that word is from pharmakia, drug abuse. And sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. My Baptist commentary just throws up all over this section of Revelation and says, this is wrong. But you know what? It's not wrong. It's correct and it's consistent with the rest of the scriptures. The fact that we don't like a scripture doesn't make it wrong. Where in 1 Corinthians does it talk about the Bema Seed Judgment? Let's turn up there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 11. Which reminds us that there is no other way to God than salvation by faith in Messiah. Verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is our Messiah Yeshua. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, so verse 11 is salvation by faith. Verse 12 is, now what do you do after you get saved? If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are correct things. Wood, hay, and straw, those are not correct things. Each one's work will become clear for the day, what day? Judgment Day, the day of the Lord, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire. Fire pictures what? Judgment. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, that's the gold, silver, and precious stones, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So those rewards, we can get up to five what? Crowns. crowns. So when do we get our crowns, does it say? At his coming. At the Bema Seat Judgment. Let's go to first, first, no, let's go to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we'll go, Revelation 4. Let me speak to my math majors out there. Which comes first, four or six? Louder? Four, okay. Chapter four, verse one, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven to the Jewish audience. What day is he talking about? Feast of trumpets. First voice which I heard was like a trumpet. Yep, Yom Teruah. Speaking with me saying, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place. After this, there's a throne set in place. And look in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. On the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. They have received their reward. This assures us this is the rapture and resurrection. 
In chapter 5, the people sing, not just the 24 elders, but all the saints in God's presence. They're singing, starting in verse 9. We mentioned in Isaiah 26 that new song. Here it is. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So who's singing in verses 9 and 10? Are they angels? Are they 24 elders? No, because all 24 came from Israel. These are the redeemed saints that have been raptured and resurrected and are in heaven watching Messiah open the first seal in chapter 6. If we receive our rewards that Messiah is coming for us, and we're wearing our crowns and robes, and singing about having been redeemed from all people, tribes, tongues, and nations, before he opens the first seal, which begins the tribulation period, then when is the rapture and resurrection? It be four. Okay, back to Isaiah. We're in chapter 62. We're up to verse 12. The last verse is 62. And they shall call them the holy people. So who's the them? What's that? That's the bride. Who's the they? The they refers to the bride. Those that have come to Jerusalem to be with the Lord. It's like, so the bride is going to call the bride the holy people? Yes. Okay. They should call themselves the holy people. Well, that's the way you would say this in Hebrew. Okay. There isn't a separate word for themselves. It's the same word. It's back to the, it goes back to the language. The yeah. And if this is the kingdom, and it is, they're the only ones left. <laughs> That's true. We're going to look at all kinds of proofs of that in a minute, but they shall call them the holy people. What is that word holy? It's the same word as saints. Kadosh. Or in Greek, hagias. Correct. Well, you guys are learning well. I like that. The redeemed of the Lord. How does the Lord redeem us? We're redeemed through his shed blood. To be the redeemed of the Lord... That word redeemer has to be a near kinsman, has to be somebody who's a flesh and blood relative. So how could the Lord be our flesh and blood relative? He had to be born of woman 2,000 years ago. That's why Messiah came in human form, flesh and blood, born of Mary. And you shall be called, that is you is Jerusalem, shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. The redeemed of the Lord. Go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 12. Tell us why God was pleased to have Messiah crucified. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It's not bruise. It's to crush as in to crush an olive, so that the olive oil, which pictures the Holy Spirit, can come out. He has put him to grief. That's Isaiah 53.10, yes. 
He has put him to grief. When you make his soul, which means his very life, an offering for sin, which means he dies for sin, he shall see his seed. Wait a minute, the word seed means descendants, in this case spiritual descendants. How can a dead person see those that come afterward? Must be resurrected. So this is a promise of resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The only way to prolong the days of a dead person is to resurrect them. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That labor of his soul and shall be satisfied means he sees all of you get saved by faith. And that makes everything he suffered on Calvary's tree worth it to him. By his knowledge or by knowledge of him, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. In verse 10, it said he died for sin. In verse 11, we find out, but it's not his sin. It's mine and yours. Go back to Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4 tells us, like Daniel just did, that it's only the saved, the redeemed, that will be in Jerusalem when the Lord establishes the messianic kingdom because all those that were unsaved, unrepentant, will die. Isaiah 4, verses 3 to 6. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, what is Zion? Prophetic Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy, will be called a saint. Everyone who's recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. That's the seven-year tribulation period. Zechariah 13 describes it as being like silver is refined. Silver is put through the fire seven times. How many years of the tribulation period? Seven years. The Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That's how God dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. For over all the glory there will be a covering. What kind of covering? A chupa, which is a marriage canopy. Who dwells under the marriage canopy but the bridegroom and the bride? And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Exodus 15 is from the Song of Moses. That's right, and they shall sing the Song of Moses. Exodus 15, verse 13. When we first started this fellowship in December of 2012, meeting in our living room, it was Carol who said, can we sing some songs? Remember? And I said, ah, 
The first song we're going to sing is Mika Mocha and the Song of Moses. Yeah, yeah. Exodus 15. This is from the Song of Moses. Verse 13. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Look at those words in verse 13. Mercy. To whom does God promise mercy? Those who love him and keep his commandments. The people you have redeemed, that is, have paid for with his own blood. Have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Wow, I like those words. Go to Revelation 15, verse 3, which says we're going to sing what? The Song of Moses. Which means that the Song of Moses was not just about the exodus from Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai. It's about much more than that. There was great prophetic meaning. Tell me what Ecclesiastes 1.9 is about. Nothing new under the sun. What's happened before will happen again. Look at Revelation 15, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, where your judgments have been manifested. Notice the first part of verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's the same song. One was an exodus from Egypt, from physical captivity, the second is the exodus from spiritual Egypt, from spiritual captivity. Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. It comes from the seed of idolatry. And notice he's the king of the who? Saints. I like it. Go back to Luke 1. In Luke 1, Messiah is not even born yet. And yet they're already singing about him. We'll start in verse 67. Now his father, referring to the father of John the Baptist... Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Like it's already happened. There's a special tense in Hebrew called the prophetic perfect that it's so certain to occur, you write it as though it already has. 
Was there any question that we were going to be redeemed through the blood of Messiah? There was no question whatsoever. Satan can try all that he wants to to beat God. And it's not going to happen. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18. Right after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Does tradition refer to God's commandments? No, it refers to man-made rules and regulations. So if we weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, what were we redeemed with? Verse 19 with the precious blood of Messiah as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifesting these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God redeemed by the precious blood of our Messiah Yeshua that spotless lamb of God that's why we're singing Revelation 5 9 let's look again we were just there a few minutes ago Revelation 5 9 we're singing to Messiah when we say, You, Messiah, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Remember when Messiah was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with the apostles falling asleep? Praying, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. A lot of people say that's because he lost faith. He didn't believe in God anymore. But that's not it. What he wanted the apostles to know is there was no other way. What if he'd refused to be crucified? He could have said, no, nah, mm, ain't going. He could have called down 10,000 angels and said, I'm not doing it. But where would that have left you and I? Lost in our sins. That's why he said, it must be. There is no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me, he said in John 14, 6. So let's go to Revelation 14. We talked a little while ago about the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. They get mentioned again here in Revelation chapter 14. In fact, we'll start in verse 1 because that tells us this 144,000 we're talking about. Then looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Yeah, who's that lamb? That's Messiah. 
and with them 144,000. That's 144,000 of Revelation 7. Having his father's name written on their foreheads. That's the seal they received in chapter 7. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. Whose voice sounds like the voice of many waters? Messiah's does. And like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. In prophecy, what does the earth refer to? Israel. And the sea refers to the Gentiles. So it again tells us these 144,000 are Jewish young men. It says in verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women. That is, they've never had intercourse with a woman. Uh, Ten years old. For, for their virgins. They're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Well, there were firstfruits back in the time Messiah arose. But these are the firstfruits of the tribulation period of the great multitudes that are going to get saved in those seven horrible years. Back to Isaiah chapter 62. I see a red one out there. Let me see what it is. Another name for Jerusalem. Yep, okay. Isaiah 62 verse 12. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Let's go to Ezekiel 9.9. 9. Ezekiel 9 9. Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. So this is talking about people. 2,600 years ago or so. Saying, God doesn't see what we do. He doesn't care what we do. He's forsaken the land. But what do they call the land in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 12? In the kingdom, a city not forsaken. God has not forsaken us. If anyone turned, we turned from God. God will never forsake us so long as we are faithful to him. Chapter 63. Chapter 63 is bigger than what it appears. Chapter 63 is about judgment on Edom. So let's read verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? That was the capital of Edom. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. The answer, 
I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Okay, let's talk for a moment. This is not just about judgment upon a portion of the current kingdom of Jordan. Edom here is representative of all of the enemies of Israel down through the ages. If you were to ask the Jewish sages, what is Edom? They will say Edom is Rome, the Roman Empire. They say that Rome was founded by Edom. But let's first go back and look and see what Edom really is in reality before we look at any spiritual meanings. Edom is Esau. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 25. Jacob's twin brother Esau was named Esau because Esau means hairy. Hairy like hair all over him like an animal. At least they didn't call him furry. That would have been worse. But they also give him a nickname of Esau to Edom. Esau becomes Edom. So Genesis 25 verse 30 says, and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom means red. So they nickname him after the stew that he ate. To remind him that Jacob did not steal the birthright. It says that Esau despised his birthright. That's the last sentence of verse 34. So after that, Esau is called Edom. Now let's look also at chapter 36 of Genesis. And we're going to find that throughout history, even to today, Edom is persecuting Israel. Chapter 36, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Down to verse 8. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Mount Seir is the southern part of what is today called Jordan. It's down where Petra is. It says again, Esau is Edom. God wants to make sure we know that. But then look down at verse 12. Well, Let's just start in verse 8 and read. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. And Jeruel, the son of Basimot, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. The descendants of Kenaz are called the Kenizzites, if that name means something to you. Verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is Esau's grandson. Who was it that attacked Israel constantly from behind as they were coming out of Egypt? The Amalekites attacking the weak, the sick, the elderly, the children, those that couldn't move very fast. That was Amalek. 
I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Let me just look ahead. But who was it that God told Saul to destroy every man, woman, and child? Amalek. Did Saul do it? No. And because of that, God said there would be war between Amalek and Israel until the day of the Lord. So whenever you see missiles being fired from Gaza and from southern Lebanon, etc., these are the descendants of Edom. If we had read more through Genesis, you would see that Edom chose his wives from the descendants of Ishmael and others. So all of those lines from the descendants of Abraham who were not in the promised people have all intermarried in mixed blood. So all that Muslim fury against Israel from the Middle East is all coming from the descendants of Edom. Back to Isaiah 63. So in a broad sense, when it refers here to Edom, it's talking about the physical descendants of Edom that will be enemies of Israel up until the Battle of Armageddon. In Jewish eyes, like I said, they consider it the Roman Empire, which included the, descendant, the physical descendants of Edom. And in fact, they teach that the founders of Rome were from Edom. And they say that's why the Roman Catholic Church has persecuted them from the time of its creation all the way down to the present. Because they're carrying out the animosity between Adom and Amalek and Israel. Is that true or not? We'll find out. But for sure, Edom is being used here symbolically for all of the enemies of Israel. Talking about those that come against Israel in the day of the Lord. So, back to verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments? That word dyed is from the word chametz, which means dyed red, as in from blood. From Bozra, again, Bozra is the capital city. And the question continues, this one who is glorious in his apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength. So there is a conqueror that's out there destroying Edom at the Battle of Armageddon. They say, who is this? And the last part of verse 1 is the response from Messiah. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So I speak in righteousness is a reference back to Isaiah chapters 9 and 11 and the fact that God comes in the form of Messiah to be a righteous judge. And the, the mighty to save is that he's trying to bring salvation to the world through the battles in the tribulation period. So verse 2 says, why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress. But you know the word's not actually winepress, is it? The word is got. Got. The word got means a press. It can be a wine press. Where did Messiah pray before he was captured and taken away to be crucified? 
Gethsemane gotchmoni means olive press. So the word got just means a press. Something where something is crushed so that the liquids, the fluids will flow out. They use here the word, they took God and broadened it to wine press because all the red in his garments is like the juice of the grapes being trampled out in a wine press. Hmm. That also made me think of Joel chapter 3. So let's turn up to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 2 is about the tribulation period. So what is chapter 3 about? The tribulation period. Yeah. Joel chapter 3. The word God is in verse 13, but I want to read all the chapter. Because it's all relevant to what's going on in Isaiah 63. Verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time. What's at that time? The tribulation period. When I bring back the captives of Judah in Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. What does Jehoshaphat mean? It means the Lord will judge. And I will enter into judgment with them there. This judgment is called the tribulation period. On account of my people, my heritage Israel, So when they come down to destroy Israel, God gets rather unhappy, displeased. Yeah, that too, but don't say that on tape. Okay. Whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Uh Uh-oh. I wish the United States would stop pushing Israel to divide the land. They have cast lots for my people, that is, they took them into captivity. Have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. That is, dealing with the slaves that they took from God's people. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia are involved in which of the battles? That's the Psalm 83 war. But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. And the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks. That they may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Talking about Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And then the battle of Armageddon. What's the opposite of Isaiah 2.4? Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Which means war. 
Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations. That's Armageddon. So we have all three battles described here. Gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the winepress. There's the gaunt. The winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Then in Hebrew is Hamon Gog, which is directly from Ezekiel 38 and 39. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. We remember that from Matthew 24 about the day of the Lord. Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. So where have we come to in verse 17? We've come to the Messianic kingdom. Messiah dwelling on earth. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. Remember Ezekiel 47. And water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation. And Edom, there's that Edom, a desolate wilderness. Because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. How's that for a prophecy? Wow. It made me think of Revelation 14. I hope it did you. So let's go to Revelation 14 as our time is expiring. In Joel 3 as well as in Isaiah 63, it talks about throwing the grapes into the vat. Revelation 14 verses 19 and 20 says, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, which is 200 miles. And our time has expired. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3. But don't forget, tomorrow is the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost even. We will be here at 1030 like normal.